Thank you again for being with us worship this morning. Thank you very much, Liz, for playing for us, for coming and playing for us. We appreciate that. Thank you, Sarah and Mark and Margaret, for singing as well. Thank you so much for your willingness to serve in this way. I will pray as we come to God's word. It is holy ground. And I'll pray by reading some words, well-known verse words from Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, Amen. If you have a Bible, turn to Genesis 18. And we're working through the book of Genesis in our morning services and the John's Gospel in our afternoon services. And we come to John 13 this afternoon, but this morning in Genesis 18, 16 to 33. And we have the second half of the story where the Lord and two angels appear to Abraham and Sarah at Mamre, who then provide a meal, and then the three angels announce that next year Sarah will have a baby. Now we transition with eyes set towards Sodom and the evil that is there. So Genesis 18 and verse 16, then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous in the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find, destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he said, spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty I will not do it. 
Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. Where, when he finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. This is a text that can be taken and has been taken in many different directions. So I'm going to take it in three myself, to be precise. And we can look at this, this story of Abraham bargaining. You, can, you definitely picked that up, didn't you? Abraham bargaining back and forth with the Lord. So this is, at one level, a story about prayer. That's the first direction I'll take. Secondly, this is definitely a lesson about corporate responsibility. And through the Bible, this is a relevant topic. When might one person be guilty or culpable if they're in the midst of many unrighteous people? Corporate responsibility. And at the end, look at it as a lesson about divine justice. The question in verse 14, is anything too hard for God? And the question in verse 25, will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Last week we looked at God is great, and we'll end by looking at God is good, which is where we will land. So three big themes, three directions. The first is prayer. Well, Abraham is very privileged, isn't he? In verse 17, the Lord says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And we've already heard, we know from what we've seen already in Genesis, that Sodom is filled with wickedness. It's filled with wicked people. Judgment is coming in chapter 19. And the Lord says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? This is chapter 18. Seeing that Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. Now why is that important? Or well, two reasons are given. First, Abraham is going to be this great nation. Through him all the nations of the world will be blessed. In other words, Abraham should know what is going to happen to one of those nations. If all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through him, Abraham should know what is going to happen to the peoples of Sodom and Gomorrah. And specifically because Sodom is going to experience the curse of God's wrath, not the blessing that would come through obedience. So should we not tell the father of many nations what is going to happen to this nation? That's the first the second is in verse 19, that Abraham is meant to pass on to his children and to his household the lesson of Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah is meant to be a cautionary tale that Abraham is meant to tell, is meant to pass on. So Abraham does not just want to see fire and hail and brimstone come down and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and wonder... What is that all about? No, the three angels, one the Lord, the two others, they want Abraham to understand. It's because they have rebelled, they, have, they are wicked, deserving of God's judgment. So he will be able to relay. 
And verse 19, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. There are covenant obligations for Abraham. This is a lesson. This is what will happen if you continue to flout, to run afoul of God's will and God's ways. And the Lord tells Abraham in verse 20, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. And the outcry, it means that the sin is screaming out, as it were. It's an outcry. And it's come to the ears of the Lord. And more than that, it's probably the crying out, the outcry of the people who are oppressed by the sin of Sodom. We know that Sodom is famous for the sin of sexual immorality. And we see that clearly in the passage. Our world is guilty of the sin of sexual immorality. And the crying out from those who are oppressed by that. And we know from other places, Ezekiel and elsewhere in the Old Testament, they were also guilty of injustice toward outsiders. They oppressed the poor. Sodom was wicked. It had manifold sins. And those they oppressed, their cries went up to the Lord. And he would come to see if it were so. The first part of chapter 18, if you remember, God was provoked by Sarah's laughter. We saw that last week. God was provoked by Sarah's laughter. But here in the second half, he is provoked by Sodom's groans. Sarah's laughter, but Sodom's groans. Well, Abraham is in a privileged position. He has an inside look at what is about to happen. And it's a humble and reverential prayer that Abraham offers. Look at the language over and over again. He understands it is a privilege that he should speak to the Lord. Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. I, who am but dust and ashes. He's referring to how he was made, Genesis 2. And it's a way of saying to the Lord, God, you are creator, I am creature. You are ineffable, you are infallible. I am but dust and ashes. He never loses sight. And we should not lose sight when we pray. That there is a gulf between us and God. He is in the heavens, we are on the earth. He is the creator, the sustainer, the almighty one. And we are but dust and ashes. Abraham understands his place, his position. Verse 30. Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Verse 31, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Verse 32, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. Throughout this prayer, Abraham, and he is a rich man, he's an impressive man, he's had victory over armies and kingdoms, he's had kings bow before him. He, he's a great man in the scheme of things, but before God, he is small. And so his prayer is, Deferential, respectful, mindful of the Lord's greatness and his smallness. I wonder whether we get used to it. But it doesn't take, you can just walk around the lake just two minutes away and surely your heart must sing, How great thou art. God is great and we are but small. So, Abraham, it is a humble prayer. 
But it's a bold prayer. It's full of faith. He kept knocking on the door. And God is eager to hear from him. And I, I love the way that Abraham just keeps sticking his foot in the door, doesn't he? He just does one more thing. Does <laughs> one more thing. But God keeps listening to him. I, I was struck by the patience of God. As Abraham boldly makes his request. 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. So there, there, there are two dangers in prayer. Sometimes we can be too familiar with God. You can be too familiar with God. He isn't your mate down from down the road. Abraham is a good example of how not to be too familiar with God. He understands who God is. He understands that there is a God. Some walks in with no sense that we're talking to the creator God of the universe. Our forefathers in the faith understood this better than we do. And perhaps those of us who are younger, I mean, I grew up and it took me, I think, 25 years to stop saying thee and now in prayer. That's how I, you know, that, that's how I, how I grew up. But there's something very good about that, you know. Reverence. And sometimes, you know, people have had no experience of praying with the these and nows and we beseech thee. And you can just write it off, well, that's King James only people kind of thing. But there was something that was commendable and reverential. And let's never lose that. Because when we pray, we're talking to Lord God Almighty, how great thou art. So that is, that is one danger. But the other danger is, you know, you can be too casual with God for sure. But you could also never ask him hard things. I've been impressed with this the last two or three weeks. Pray big prayers. Pray big prayers. Believe that God can do anything. And we never ask God for the hard things or risky things. And we only ever ask for safe things. Or we pray for things that are easy for us, let alone for God. But Abraham keeps sticking his foot in the door and says, would you just hear me one more time? I'm going to keep on knocking. Let us keep on knocking. Let us never give up praying. And he has a bold request for God. It is a humble prayer, it is reverential, but it is bold and it is merciful. I want you to notice that this is the first time in the Bible, Genesis 18, that man initiates a conversation with God. God has talked to man. He talked to Adam and Eve. He talked to Abraham. He spoke to Sarah. He spoke to Hagar. He called down to Noah. But heretofore, it was God who initiated the conversation with man. Here, for the first time, man initiates a conversation with God. And it's a great prayer of intercession. It's reverential, it's bold, and it's crying out for mercy. He prays for this wicked city. I have been convicted recently that we don't pray enough for our enemies. That we don't pray for the world in which we live. We pray for people and things we like. But we don't pray for things we don't like. And I think that's a challenge for us. And it's right to pray for the victims of abuse. But do you pray for the abuser? 
Do you pray that they would find mercy before God? Or because that is so non-PC, we wouldn't dare be here doing that. Do we pray big prayers? Abraham prays for mercy for Sodom. The most infamous city anywhere in the world that has become a byword. Sodom and Gomorrah is a byword for evil, for sexual immorality, and he prays for them. You say, oh, well, well, hang on a minute. He's, no, he's praying for Lot. He, you know, he's praying for his nephew. He's, sure, he's praying for his family, but he's not only praying for Lot. Otherwise, he would have said, Lord, would you have mercy on Lot and my family? And indeed, the Lord does spare Lot. He could have said, would you only have mercy on the righteous? But he says, for the sake of the righteous, would you spare the city? Abraham is the very opposite of Jonah. Jonah, though Nineveh had repented, remember chapter 4 of Jonah, he said, that's not what I wanted. I didn't want them to repent. And Abraham, though they had not repented, said, Lord, would you have mercy? Do you take seriously, and when was the last time you prayed for your enemies? Jesus told us to. To pray for our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. And you think, well, do I really have enemies? Well, think about it. There are people who hate what we believe. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that that's the truth. It is true. There are people in this country, online, maybe even close to you in your school, maybe in your sphere of influence, in your place of work, maybe even in your family, and they hate what Orthodox, Bible-believing Christians believe about any number of things. And if they listened to it, they would hate what comes from this pulpit. There are enemies, and God says we ought to love them. You have enemies, people who hate what you stand for, people who hate you. Can you be merciful towards them? Matthew Henry said, as bad as it was in Sodom, Abraham thought there were several good people in it. It becomes us to hope the best of the worst places. Of the two, it is better to err in that extreme. Rather than erring in the extreme that I will never be taken for a fool again, I will always be cynical. I assume the worst about everybody and everything. And then that way I'll never be taken advantage of again. That's one way to live. I think this way to live is better. To be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. But better to have hope. I think it's okay to be a gospel gospel optimist. Sometimes people say to me, you're far too optimistic. But I would rather be a gospel optimist, you know. Because Jesus has, I often remind myself, Jesus has won the victory. I was rather happy last weekend because a team won, a team, my team won a famous victory. But Jesus has won the ultimate victory. There is a picture, by the way, of one of the, one of the players in Chelsea players. His name is Olivier Giroud. He, he's a famous Christian and he was pictured with a Bible verse on his shirt. And so, I mean, I'm not making anything about the team, but we, but we should celebrate that there is a greater victory. There is a greater victory. And even Sodom, Abraham thought, perhaps there were righteous people there. Brothers and sisters, we are sinful. 
Let not those who are sinful be quicker to execute punishment than God who is holy. <laughs> we are sinful, but we are the ones who are crying out, judgment, 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 rather than God who is holy. There's a line from Gandalf to Frodo, and if you haven't read Tolkien, this would be a great time to start, but Frodo is complaining that Gandalf should have killed the skulking Gollum when he had the chance. And Gandalf said, Many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? Then do not be eager to deal out death and judgment. Surely a word for us. Let us not be over-eager to deal out death and judgment. Abraham held out hope that perhaps Sodom could be spared, and he prayed for them. What a great way to view the world. It's right to be discouraged sometimes about what is going on around us. But what a great way to end up, to pray. To pray for mercy. That's the first direction. It's a lesson about prayer. But secondly, it's a lesson about corporate responsibility. And it's quite pertinent and timely. Are you guilty of sins that people committed in the past? Are you guilty of sins that people committed who look like you? How does corporate responsibility work? On the one hand, you can, can't say that the Bible does not talk about corporate responsibility or corporate repentance. It does. But you can take that too far and lump anyone and everyone together just because they look the same, have the same ethnicity, the same race, and the Bible does not do that either. Think about the example of the Jews in Jerusalem at the time of the crucifixion. This is really instructive. In Acts 2, Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The Jews present in Jerusalem in Passion Week bore some responsibility for the death of Jesus. The Romans were the ones who nailed him there, but Peter and John speak to them as if they had responsibility. Acts 3. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, who you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. And we do not know, was every single person there at Solomon's portico in Acts 3, among the crowd, when they chose Barabbas over Jesus and shouted, crucify him. Peter was comfortable with saying corporately, you're responsible for this. It was a sin in need of repentance. We see in Acts 4 and Acts 5, Peter and John charged the Sanhedrin, you killed Jesus. So the Jews in Jerusalem during Jesus' last day bore corporate responsibility for his murder. So there was a sense of corporate responsibility. But it's instructive to hear how Peter and Paul then speak about the Jews elsewhere and later. So once we move on from Jerusalem, it sounds different. Paul tells the crowd in Pisidian Antioch, 
those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers condemned Jesus. Paul is talking to Jews. Religiously, ethnicity, the same people. But he doesn't blame the Jews in Antioch for the crimes of the Jews in Jerusalem. He says what they did, not what you did. And that's a consistent pattern. Paul doesn't charge the Jews in Thessalonica or Berea with killing Jesus. All the Jews in Corinth. All the Jews in Ephesus. Years later, Paul returns to Jerusalem and he doesn't accuse the Jews then living in Jerusalem of killing Jesus because time had elapsed. He doesn't charge the council in Acts 23. He didn't blame Felix Festus Agrippa for Jesus' death, though those men were in positions of authority connected with the government that years ago had killed Jesus. So the apostles considered the Jews in Jerusalem at the time of the crucifixion to be uniquely responsible for the death of Jesus. But that culpability with that group of people didn't extend to every high-ranking official. Every Jew was thereafter guilty of the same thing. Now, they had other sins. Of course they did. They had to repent of those sins. But they weren't charged specifically with killing the Messiah. They were not guilty because they shared an ethnic, historic, religious identity. And there is a great danger when we do not heed this lesson. It has happened throughout history where people are judged as a group. And we've seen it so much with anti-Semitism in the 20th century and I can't believe we're facing it again today. Well, you are the Jews. We know what the Jews are like and what the Jews did. And you're ascribed the worst characteristic of any Jew who has ever lived. May God have mercy on us. But today is the same with racial confusion. We know what black people are like, you're all like that. And we know what white people are like, they're all like that. The Bible does not say that. The Bible does not do corporate responsibility like that. Yes, we must be discerning. There is a way the Bible talks about corporate identity. Matthew 23, verse 35, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Scholars disagree who this is, but most think this is the Zechariah, not in the present. So Jesus charges the scribes and Pharisees with killing Zechariah. No, they didn't actually do it, so why does Jesus charge them? Because they have the same wicked, murderous attitude and motive. And he's saying, you treat me and the prophets like your fathers treated the prophets. So he does hold them in a sense of responsibility, because they have the same heart condition. And we see in the Old Testament several examples of corporate confession. Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel... They confess the sins of the nation. But here we must remember they were not confessing just the sins of people who looked like them. But they were confessing the sins of a people who had entered a covenant with God. 
In all the examples above, with Ezra, Nehemiah and Daniel, they were praying on behalf of the covenant people. They were praying for people marked with unfaithfulness. They were leaders who bore responsibilities for the sins of the people. So to sum up, when we come to Genesis 18, the Bible does have a category for corporate responsibility. Culpability for sins committed extend past an individual. If virtually everyone in the group was active in that sin. Or if there is a covenantal community identity relative to that sin. But we must not take corporate responsibility too far. The Jews of the diaspora were not guilty of killing Jesus just because they were Jews. Neither were Jews later in Jerusalem charged with the crime. I think it's a relevant matter in our day. I think it's right to give biblical background to notice two things here in Genesis 18 that are relative to this. Abraham does not think that the righteous become wicked by dwelling in the city. Nor does he think the wicked become righteous. Abraham has two categories. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? You can sometimes be complicit in larger sins. But here Abraham says, if there are wicked people in the city, they bear responsibility for being wicked. And there are righteous people. That is a different category. Just because the righteous live among the wicked does not make them wicked. Thankfully. Just because the wicked are in the righteous doesn't make them righteous. So he has two categories. And the second thing I want you to see is how Abraham asked that God would have mercy on the wicked for the sake of the righteous. It reminded me so much, this is the opposite of how our world does things. Our world, our world cancels people. We have a cancel culture. That you may not have personally done something wrong, but you're embedded among the people who are wicked. Therefore, you too are culpable, and you, to be, you should be shamed, you should be cut off, you should be punished. In other words, our world says if there's a little bit of wickedness somewhere in the institution, it corrupts everything. And all of you should be punished. Here the stronger contagion, as it were, is righteousness. Abraham does not say, if there are 90% of the city is righteous, Lord, surely. Our world would tend to say 90% are righteous, 10% are wicked. So what on earth are these righteous people doing? They're probably guilty too. And Abraham says, God, if there's just a small fraction of righteous people, would you have mercy? We live in a day that loves to take down as many people as possible for the sins of very few. And God says, I will spare many for the sake of the righteous. In other words, the righteous few are more noteworthy to God than the many wicked. Leads us to our final theme, the justice of God. We do not know how many people lived in Sodom. There is a verse in Amos that makes us think it was a city, which would be about a hundred people. So Abraham starts with half the city, if that is the case. But we don't know. Sodom might have been 
bigger than that. We're not given a mathematical proportion. As if God is promising us, if you could just have this number of righteous people, I will never let anything happen bad happen to your city, your country, or your people group. Now we know from Proverbs that a bad ruler often means bad things for the whole city. So this is not a rigid formula that the righteous will never have anything bad happen to them. But the overarching principle is inviolable, and it is this. The judge of all the earth will do what is just. He will always be fair in his judgment. God bases his judgment on evidence. There are no Twitter mobs, thank the Lord, in God's moral universe. Why does he have two angels come in chapter 19 down to Sodom? Likely because later the Mosaic prescription was, you shall not judge a man guilty except on the evidence of two witnesses. God does not need a witness. He knows everything. He has heard everything. But God has sent these two angels down, and they're going to see, is Sodom deserving of this judgment? And in the end, we see Sodom and Gomorrah got what they deserved. They didn't even have ten righteous people in the city. The wicked were destroyed, the righteous were spared, just as God said. Lot's son-in-laws did not believe Lot. Lot's wife famously turned back. Lot and his daughters made it out of Sodom, even though they were accounted among the righteous to leave Sodom. Yet they prove quickly how wickedly they can behave. But one of the lessons here is no one gets worse than they deserve. Why do bad things happen to good people with the book of Job? It's an honest question, although there's been many terrible man-made answers to that question. But the bigger question in the Bible is always the opposite. Why do good things happen to anyone? Why do good things happen to bad people? I'm a bad person. But in mercy, in God's mercy, I know the saviour of the world. Why do good things happen to bad people. Why do good things happen to anyone? Sodom didn't get worse than they deserved. Gomorrah didn't get worse than they deserved. Lot and his family didn't get worse than they deserved. It's true for them and it's true for each one of us that we will all stand before God. We will all stand before God. And I'll be absolutely 100% failing in everything I do if I did the same, that's absolutely true for every one of you. You will have to stand before God and give an account. And not a single person will receive worse than they deserve. Not a single person. The judge of all the earth will do what is right. But there's one unresolved question. Why stop at ten? Did you notice that? Why stop at ten? Why not keep going? Now we don't know ultimately... Some say it was a safe number to include his family. Some scholars say that ten was the smallest number for a community. So Abraham was praying, if there's just one community, would you spare the city? More likely, Abraham thought he couldn't bargain any more. <laughs> he was done. But we don't know. We don't know. Would God have spared the city for five? Three? Two? One? Perchance... God might save the wicked for the sake of one. 
And therein, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. Because that is what God has done. God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's beautiful, my friend. It's absolutely beautiful. Not ten, not five, not three, not two, but one. The Lord says, yes, for the sake of one righteous person, I will have mercy on wicked sinners. For the sake of my son, my beloved son, the judge of all the earth will do what is just. And for the sake of Christ's righteousness counted to us, he will judge us to be righteous. Although we deserve to be counted among the wicked. Isn't that good news? God is great. But God is good. God is good. And he will judge the ungodly. And he will save all those who flee to that one righteous man for refuge. And he will spare his judgment upon the many for the sake of one. Hallelujah. What a saviour. Amen.